I mean, what, what are we going to do about that Harvey kid? Huh? Dark He's Knight. Bum. He's a bum. Come on. Dark Knight. I need him to not stay out until the night becomes not dark. How about Ayo! that? Hey, there you go. <laughs> Eventually, I got it. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, um, see, don't answer. I mean, this, these are all rhetorical questions. Because you know I told you, and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work, work at all. It's it's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up and tried to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker. And a shot controller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bow. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. I'm Chad McMallon, an editor at 538. With me in the studio, it's Neil Statman Payne. Hello, Neil. Hey, Chad. Neil, What's you, up? Neil, you know what I realized today? What's up? The Mets <laughs> record and the Cubs record are just, the same. They're inverses of one another. The Mets are 15-16, the Cubs are 16-15. Wow. Everyone agrees the Cubs are the best team in the majors. So the Mets are like the basically the best team in the majors. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. By the, uh, what is it, transitive property? I don't, I don't even know which property that is. The By associative the property. logical property of transference. Yeah, yeah. there you Versus, go. Uh, oh, that other voice you hear, listeners, is ESPN w, w columnist Kate Fagan, who has recently returned from a three-day suspension for violating hot takedowns team rules. Wow. Kate. What'd I do? You were out till four in the morning with Matt Harvey. And then you just called in How the next did you day, know? sick, quote-unquote, and we had to send Hot Takedown Security Squad to your house to make sure you were actually there. I thought then that I wouldn't have to podcast today. Isn't yeah, isn't that, that the whole point? Suspension during the be? suspension? No, we suspended you during when you weren't supposed to pitch or pod. And oh, so you can man. be back for your regular Next time I'm going to like incur an even greater infraction so I can miss a full week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bad incentive system. This is, yeah, you've <laughs> set you know up what? a moral hazard here, Ted. I want a, sus- I want a longer suspension. Uh, all right. On today's show, because Kate is with us and because Neil is with us and because We're here, it's just the news is, is dominated by Mets news. So we couldn't resist. We will talk about the Mets and their drama-filled, injury-riddled mess. Is it just bad luck that everyone continues to get hurt or violate these team rules? Or is it a curse on the Mets? Uh, and then we will discuss the sub-two-hour marathon race that we spoke about, I think, a couple weeks ago on the show, where several marathon athletes tried to break the two-hour mark. One of them came awfully close. And we will talk to 538's Christy Ashwanden to see whether or not we should be impressed or skeptical. I'm impressed because I can I'm do skeptical. Oh. I'm halfway in between. You know? Impressively we're like, skeptical. We're like, we're like the three <laughs> skeptically <goals>. impressed. <laughs> but first, let's talk about the NBA, where the playoffs have started to get nastier and, I would argue, better as the teams barrel toward the conference finals. The Cavs and Warriors are already in to their respective conference finals, and the Rockets and Spurs are locked in a what I would call a coaching duel in, in the other series in the West. Uh, but we wanted to first focus on the remaining series in the East, uh, where Isaiah Thomas and John Wall are putting on tricks to help. We've invited 538's NBA writer Chris Herring on. Hi, Chris. Hey, guys. How are you? Chris, it's been so long since we had you on Hot Takedown. Very excited to hear your voice. So the series between the Wizards and the Celtics is tied 2-2. Two, 
to two going into game five on Wednesday night, I believe. How much of it revolves around the two point guards? Because it seems to me like they're at least the avatars of the teams, if not sort of how uh, the, the, the engines and how each team needs to respond to the other. You know, I, I kind of get the impression that it's, it's a lot about the other guys. You know, these, these two are, are such good players, um, you know, at least offensively. You know, you know you're going to get a lot out of them most times from night to night. And so what are the others doing? You know, what is Bradley Beal contributing? He's kind of been up and down this whole postseason. And so I kind of look at that. You kind of look at what adjustments the coaches are making, uh, as you brought up before, and kind of the chess match they're playing. Isaiah Thomas has been pretty inconsistent since the last series. You know, he had the 53-point game. And so it, it, they definitely matter. But, you know, it, it, it hasn't been quite as head-to-head as what you're used to seeing because of the fact that, Isaiah is so small, he's not going to guard John Wall every possession and hasn't been doing that from one play to the next. So it's, you know, it, it, these two matter, and, and obviously they, they kind of are the engines that make their teams go, but I think it's kind of about everybody else and kind of, you know, how do these teams stack up against each other as opposed to just uh, Isaiah Thomas and John Wall. Chris, I, I ran into Bruce Bowen up in Bristol, and I asked him about this series, and he said by far that the Washington Wizards, he felt were going to win, have been way more impressive Beyond just the series being tied 2-2 and the the final score numbers, what are the numbers telling us about which team at this point is playing better basketball? Before I came on with you guys, I was trying to look for an answer to that question, too, and it's hard to come up with one. I tend to think that Washington looks a little bit better, and that's because, you know, out of the gate, they, they pretty much kind of come out and throw this huge punch at the beginning each time in Boston at the beginning of the series won the first two games, even though Washington had taken a big lead to start. But it's been a series of runs, really. Every game has basically been a blowout. There's been one big run that just kind of takes the other team out of the game um, in one way or another. It's been a lot of fun because of, you know, all the fighting and the technicals and the flagrants. But I don't know what to make of this series. Um, I, I would tend to think that Boston has a little bit of an advantage just because their defense is probably better. But, I mean, the team seems so evenly matched. Boston, you know, has seen its defensive rebounding really kill them at times. You know, they, they seem a little bit too over-reliant on Isaiah Thomas at times, and Brad Stevens is trying to implore them to move the ball better and to get the ball out of his hands to, to force Washington to be more honest on defense. But, you know, I, I, I tend to think that Washington has a few more weapons, and if, you know, Kelly Oubre getting him back might help them a little bit too. I, I, I picked Washington to start the series. I still like that pick. But it, it's so evenly matched, and there really isn't one number that truly stands out to say, you know, this team should be the winner at the end of the day. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, the chippiness and kind of the, the bad blood between the two teams. It, it is a little bit surprising that because of all of that, that uh, there hasn't been a lot more defense being played. It, it seems like both neither team has really uh, been able to get a lot of stops, and, and especially, you know, the, during these massive runs that, that the teams have put up uh, in each of the games. So I'm, I guess we shouldn't be too surprised by that because it's not like these were two very good defensive teams during the regular season they were kind of more known for being offensive but it might come down to like which team can kind of cobble together uh some defensive sequences uh over the last few games of the series yeah and and to me one thing i've been a little bit surprised by and maybe this goes well for the celtics is they haven't gone as small as they can go for long stretches of time um they did that against the bulls and kind of morphed into the rockets overnight just this team that could space the floor and really 
presents matchup challenges. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, Washington wants to punish the Celtics size-wise uh, to put Gortat down there, and it, it you know it creates a little bit of an advantage on on the boards. As I was saying before, the fact that the Celtics just don't have um, enough rebounding down there. But on the other hand, uh, the Celtics also are in a situation where they could really stretch the floor out if they want to because if Gortat's going to be down there, you can use Horford and, and pull Gortat out of his comfort zone. And so it's a situation where they they really should be able to take advantage of what Washington can't do in terms of foot speed, kind of the same situation we're seeing with San Antonio and Houston. Um, the fact that the Spurs for the first few games of that series really looked confused uh, about not being able to get out with Pau Gasol and Lamarcus Aldridge. So I don't know. It, it, it's a situation where we, we saw so many teams in the East at the top of the standings where none of them were really defensive teams. The, the Raptors, the Cavs, the Celtics, the Wizards, I think all of them, like two-thirds of the way through the season, all four of them were in the bottom half of the league in defense. And, and it's just weird when you think about what the East used to be, just kind of these powerhouses, Indiana's and the Bulls and um, – you know, the Cavs from before when LeBron was there, all these teams were really, really good on defense. And now you really don't have anybody that's truly known for that. Boston's probably closest to it. But like you said, a bunch of solid offenses, but not really much to show on defense. But I thought defense won championships. <laughs> Rebounding wins championships. Oh, that's the new. Okay. All right. So let, let, let's go and talk about the best defensive team left, I think, left in the in the in the playoffs, which I would assume would be the Warriors, who have... Spurs are pretty good, Well, the good, Spurs right? had a better Spurs regular season. Better. See, you know, no, don't, every no, no, time no. I make <laughs> a claim it, on this podcast, it <laughs> it's amazing how often it's wrong. <laughs> Let's talk about the Warriors, whether or not they're the best defense left in the playoffs. They swept their first two series. The Cavs also swept their first two series. And it just seems to me like we're, we're barreling towards a likely Warriors-Cavs uh, finals. Chris, have you seen anything that suggests otherwise yet? I mean, it's fun to watch all these other series and all these other games, but it seems to me like the the, the final outcome is a little bit preordained here. I mean, not really. Uh, you'd love to be that person that has the answer to why the Cavs won't be there. And our model has been really low on the Cavs for months now. And Yeah, they have a 5% I, chance of winning. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's really hard to look at that and feel – that the Cavs aren't going to get there. You know, I would take those odds all day um, against our model, I think. And, and so, I mean, the only thing I can think of, I've been surprised by how much LeBron has had to play um, to get them out of these first two rounds, given that they're both sweeps. But, I mean, it really helps to have this much rest time when these, you know, these two com- contenders are kind of bludgeoning each other um, as, as we speak. And so I don't, I, I don't, tend to think that they're in much trouble. I mean, it, it's still concerning to me that they can't stop anybody. You know, they, they have stretches where they look good defensively. But then again, the Raptors have just been a really terrible offense in the playoffs for the last three years. And so I, I don't know how much of that is Cleveland. I don't know how much of that is Toronto just kind of doing what Toronto does. But no, I mean, I mean at the end of the day, somebody's got to stop LeBron. And even when you look back at the regular season, you know, those Washington matchups with Cleveland were a lot of fun. But those were, you know, 120 to 117 type matchups. And, um, you know, the Boston matchup, Boston might be able to slow them down a little bit, but they they looked horrible in the last matchup against Cleveland. And so it, it's hard to see how they don't get back to the finals. That I think the bigger question is, can Cleveland uh, kind of slow down the Warriors? And, and I don't see how that would happen 
And to your initial question, no, I don't see how it's not a Warriors-Cavs um, rematch for a third time. It would be the first time we've ever seen um, back-to-back-to-back uh, rematch there for the finals. But it, it, it looks more and more like that's going to be the case. Going uh, to the model, Chris, uh, like you mentioned, uh, I wonder, like, how many times do we have to see uh, something like this where, like, the regular season, a team just doesn't really give their all during the regular season and sort of, like, waits for the playoffs to, to kind of turn on the afterburners like it seems like the Cavs have done so far. Before we start, you know, and, and some of this has been asked, but, like, the NBA takes a really hard look at the incentives that they put for teams to to really give their all during the regular season? Is it going to take, you know, reducing the schedule or, you know, trying to force teams to, to play hard during certain matchups, but giving them more leeway to so, sit out other Neil, ones? Like, what is the solution here? Because it really is messing, not just as a statistician saying, model. our <laughs> model is getting is getting messed up and by the bad data. Because that's important. That's important, Kate. That's when change has but to be also, made. But also, I mean, what is the point of the regular season if not to kind of show us and give us, you know, information about who the best teams are for the purposes it's of the playoffs. It's to make money, Neil. No, That's the point of the regular season. It's to give us data so that we can plug it into a model and have that model be very Neil, successful. Those are legitimate most, questions. Those are legitimate that, those, questions those, I do want to know Chris's answer to those questions. <laughs> it's, it's, it's obviously in the eye of the beholder. I mean, you look at the Spurs and they're going to use it as, you know, they're going to use the whole season as nap time. And you've got, you know, Cleveland kind of a mix between um, trying to make sure that they can work out all the kinks in their defense, which they, they clearly needed the time to do that. Um, whether or not they're flipping a switch, they still looked awful up until a few weeks ago. Even the Indiana series, I wasn't really convinced that they were a, a, a title a title contender, clearly, but you know whether or not that they had a chance of winning. I'm still not sold on the fact that they have a chance of beating the Warriors, which is incredible to say given that they did it last year. But, you know, I, I guess everybody uses it as something different. You know, Toronto – the whole season was, you know, constantly kind of measuring themselves against Cleveland and making the trades at the deadline with the Baca and TJ Tucker to figure out how they would match up. Everybody kind of uses it to, to weigh themselves against whoever they think they're going to have to compete against. Um, Utah was trying to do that this season to try to figure out, you know, free agency. Do they need to remake themselves? What is, what is it going to take for them to get back Gordon Hayward and free agency? Uh, are they competitive enough to convince Hayward to want to stay? And so that's what, everybody uses the regular season for, um, you know, Utah would have loved more time to figure out which pieces fit perfectly with Hayward. And so everybody's in a slightly different situation. The younger teams normally aren't as concerned about the rest issue. The older teams are probably overly concerned with it, but then you watch the playoffs and you look at Nene get hurt for Houston and you look at um, Tony Parker go down for the Spurs and then you feel like it still wasn't enough rest. And so everybody's different. You know, they're, the league is most concerned about, the bottom line and, you know, the TV deals and everything like that. So they, they get upset when they have a national televised game. But when you look at a lot of those games where the teams pulled people, oftentimes they had back-to-backs. And so I think it's something the league could remedy or try to, you know, get the teams to kind of work with them in a heads-up situation where they, they just communicate better and try to maybe play in the national TV games but not the ones that are right after. But it's still a mess. I mean, you know, you'd like to see something – come of it because even if you're a fan of a team and a team that's a contender you know you want the stars to be playing on the night that you go to the game and so you'd like to see them work around a little bit better I'd love to see them shorten the schedule just a little bit and find kind of a happy medium so that you wouldn't have to have guys skip as many games as they've been skipping yeah 
All right, Chris Herring, thanks uh, thanks for coming on Hot Takedown and talking to NBA. We uh, we probably aren't done with you yet this this offseason, so we'll talk to you again soon. Look forward to it. Listeners, if you want to read more of Chris's work, you can find it on 538. We'll put a couple links to his recent pieces on the show page. Before we keep going with this week's show, let's get a word from one of our sponsors. Hot Takedown this week is sponsored by 1-800-Flowers. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and the countdown clock for you to get your mom a gift is ticking. Don't miss out on the opportunity to deliver the smile that only comes from the most gorgeous of bouquets. This Mother's Day, 1-800-Flowers.com has beautiful bouquets that are guaranteed to show mom just how much you appreciate her. Right now, when you order a dozen multicolored roses for only $29.99, 1-800-Flowers will give you another dozen plus a vase absolutely free. That is 50% off the original price. With a bright and beautiful mix of premium roses in a rainbow of colors, these blooms are guaranteed to show mom just how much she's loved. These breathtaking roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness. That's a dozen multicolored roses for only $29.99 plus another dozen and a vase for free. It's an amazing offer, but it expires this Thursday. So act fast to order a dozen multicolored roses plus an extra bouquet and a vase for, to say it again, just twenty nine ninety nine. Go to one 800 flowerscom Click the radio icon and enter code TAKEDOWN. That's one 800 flowerscom code TAKEDOWN. Hurry, the offer ends on Thursday. Okay, now on to baseball, which as usual just means on to the Mets. The Mets have, I think, deserve, have risen to the level of deserving this podcast to talk about them because they are in the headlines for one thing. After another, we will talk about Matt about Matt Harvey by the end of the segment. I have a feeling, but let's right now concentrate on the injuries, which mm-hmm. are sort of the uh, more baseball centric and stat centric thing that we can discuss. The Mets DL so far this season has featured David Wright, Noah Syndergaard, Seth Lugo, Yuenis Cespedes, Travis Darno, Stephen Matz, Lucas Duda, Juan Lagares, Brandon Nimmo. All of them have touched the DL in the first two months. This is after. Uh, Almost every Mets pitcher has had some type of injury that has shelved them for a year. Mets fans are wondering. I am wondering. I think Neil's wondering. Kate, I think you're wondering. I'm We're all wondering. wondering. My dad's definitely wondering. What is the deal with the Mets and injuries? Is it the training staff? Is Ray Ramirez, their their head trainer, a problem somehow? He's been with the team is for over a decade. Is he up to date on the latest information in the field? Or Does he need serious? to go back to med school? Or is this a fluke? And I'm hoping we can use this as a general in to talk about injuries in, in baseball in general. And Neil, I know that you've been involved in some research that our colleague Rob Arthur has been doing around mm-hmm. um, whether the Mets are, are sort of snake bitten or you know, with bad luck or if there's actually something rotten at the core of the health of their players. Yeah. So uh, Rob, as you said, wrote a story that should be appearing on 538 uh, either today or tomorrow or depending on when you're listening to this. It may have pubbed uh, a long time ago. But uh, he basically looked at uh, how much potential value, projected value teams have lost to disabled list uh, stents going back to 2010 by each major league team. So for instance, you know, the the Mets have lost, you know, hundreds of days to the DL from the various injured players that you mentioned, Chad, and we can actually pinpoint the value of that by using projected wins above replacement going into the seasons in which they were hurt, and then kind of adding up and and we prorated it so that uh, if, if a 
player missed a certain amount of the season in terms of the time they were spent on the DL, then that fraction of their value uh, is just you know gone. And we tracked how many of those, not just for the Mets, but for every team, and then added it up. And so if you do that for all the teams in Major League Baseball, going back to 2010, the Mets must find, be the worst of all of them. By far the that worst. The Mets are, uh, have had the eighth most uh, value no. loss. No. I want to be best at something. War as yeah. a Mets fan. We right. want to be world champions. Right. The something. Mets can't even be the worst at being snake bit by injuries. The Dodgers were the team that was number one in this. They lost forty two wins uh, over the last seven seasons and change uh, due to disabled list stints. Then you have the Rangers, the Red Sox, the Yankees. The, even the Yankees lost more due to injury than the Mets. Now. You can adjust this a few ways. Like, for instance, I kind of looked at it as a uh, relative to the team's total war, right? Because if you're the Dodgers, you have more war to lose because you have better players. You have the highest payroll in baseball for the past couple of years. And so if you do that, the the Rockies have the worst ratio. The Padres and the Rockies have the worst between the war that they lost and the war that their existing, you know, kind of remaining players left over uh, produced. Uh, so you could say they were the most snake bit, but even by that metric, the Mets only rank eighth. And uh, another thing you can look at is all things being equal, you would expect older players to be lost due to injury and maybe there's something there also with the Mets because of the way that they put so much of their hopes on a pitching staff we know that pitchers are by and large as kind of a, a subgroup of players pretty prone to be injured but that's taken into account by the projections right like if you uh, run a projection for a pitcher given his track record we're going to regress that sucker back to the mean a lot because of there's built-in potential to be injured uh, you know, compared with a comparable position player. Neil, I know you mentioned that some of the heavy hitting salary teams are at the top that you then put in for this ratio of what your roster has for war. But it still seems and as if when you look at this list, like at the very bottom of the list, and I don't have salaries in front of me, but like Houston, Pittsburgh, Seattle, Chicago White Sox, Brewers, Royals seem to be mostly teams that would have a lower end right. payroll. And yet still, when you take into account the ratio, they're still in the bottom few of Major League Baseball. Like, why? And I think that probably goes to the larger point of Rob's story, which is that Injuries, you know, if you think about for the leader in injury war lost, the Dodgers lost 42 wins in the span of, again, seven plus seasons. That's not that much. I mean, it shows that injuries don't really matter that much in, in the grand uh, scheme of things. Except if or you're that the Mets. We, well, uh, then or, it's kept us from at least three World Series. Well, that's that's kind of the <laughs> the overcooked uh, mentality of you know talk radio and all of this complaining about injuries and calling for the head of the trainer and things like that. The other thing there is that I've done Rob all of those looked, things. I've realized we all we all have. Uh, Rob looked at the consistency of a team's wins lost due to injury uh, from year to year, or you know across seasons, things like that, to see like well if you if it, the Training, if certain training staffs have, you know, really bad ability to treat injuries or prevent injuries, you're going to see some persistence there. And it turns out that it's basically random from year to year uh, whether a team will experience a lot of games lost due to injury or or not that much at all. So uh, that also speaks to just the way that we kind of 
create these narratives and we feel, you know, Mets fans feel snake bit about uh, the injuries, but don't think about all the times in which certain players that maybe would be likely to get injured didn't get injured or certain players outperformed. And, and that's the big thing for the Mets is that a lot of players on the team have just been performing below what we would expect from them uh, given their track records. I want to talk about Matt Harvey. Yeah. We did the numbers part of the segment. Now to let's make it feel do like a hot just now we're the emotional part. Let's just get to it, guys. Yeah. All right. So, listeners, in case you have not been following the back and forth, as some of us have in the room, Matt Harvey was supposed to start what on Sunday, correct? Uh, I was at that yes. game. Um, so on I, Sunday, I walked up to City Field and learned that instead of Matt Harvey taking the hill, it would be what was the guy's name? Adam, Adam Wilk, Wilk, who had not started a game since Wilk? 2012. Wilk. Do you think that's Wilk. like going to see Hamilton and then like Lin Manuel isn't playing Hamilton anymore? I think that's giving Matt Harvey a little bit too much okay, credit. Cool. So, but and also it's certainly Paul like Javier Munoz, the the understudy, who, who then got hurt and also isn't playing. But it's not about Hamilton. Okay. It's about Matt so, Harvey. Matt Harvey scratched from his start on Sunday afternoon. Why? We came to later find out it was a three-game suspension. Why the three-game suspension? The Mets wouldn't say. Did it perhaps have to do with the sex toy that was tweeted out in a photograph? Actually, from no. From the Mets account? Right. No, because it's the Mets. The sex toy is a separate incident That's a separate from what we're scandal, talking about. Yeah. And if you have not heard about the Mets dildo, I encourage you to Google Mets dildo. Then, instead, we you have... You might get some interesting uh, hits <clears throat> for that. Then, go on. Harvey... Uh, has not said anything this whole time. There are then reports that say that Harvey was out golfing on Saturday. He came down with a migraine. Poor guy. He texted the team. There was some that he couldn't come in that day to work, to go to the stadium for the game, for Saturday night game. And it turns out that uh, the team says that either didn't happen or it was a miscommunication. Unclear. Then we came to find out that there was a security squad. Kate, uh, I, yeah. As you are well, because uh, I got, you are I got busted. A member of, yeah. No, I got busted. Oh wait, yeah, that's right. That went to Harvey's house to confirm that he was indeed home on Saturday and not lying to the team to only further the ridiculousness. Ridiculousness. Then today, there's reporting that says Harvey was out till four in the morning on Friday night at One Oak, a premier nightclub. In New York City. Is that I've how never been He there. drank three different types of top shelf liquor, according to the report. Well, support. you can't mix liquors. Champagne, tequila, no. and something else. My computer's dead. That's the cardinal sin right there. I know. What is he even doing? So perhaps it wasn't a migraine. Perhaps it was a hangover. Did he even go golfing? Can you golf with a hangover? <laughs> All sorts of questions unanswered. Today, Tuesday, Matt Harvey returns from suspension. I think as we're recording... He was supposed to address the media. Terry Collins hoped that he would apologize to the team. There was anonymous sourcing that said he would not apologize. I love that golfing is an incidental part of this, even though it was a central part of the scandal involving uh, Cespedes' injury last year. Great point. Just wanted to the, kind the of... The way his swing worked? I honestly yeah. don't think One Oak is a premier nightclub. Have you been there? It's not. I mean, I would say it's like a decent nightclub, but it's not premier. Well, I'm not sure that's how One Oak would say. Okay. All right. All that preamble to say this. What are the Mets going to do with Matt Harvey? Well, he's gone. Forget about hot takedown. I feel uh, like he's gone. Give me your hot takes. What, oh, he's what? gone. He's gone. He's going to get traded. His, his Mets career is Yeah, up. I don't even know that he has the same value. I mean, we, the, the Mets should have traded him at this point like two years two ago. Two years ago when his trade We've value about this. was the highest. And at this point now, oh, please, Chad, jump in. Breaking news yeah. from our producer, Katie Ferguson. 
Matt Harvey's been Matt traded. Harvey has apologized. Been treated. No, he's Matt apologized. Matt Harvey oh. says he's embarrassed. About the sex toy or something else? <laughs> Quote, first off, as I just did with my teammates and all, the, my, and all the coaches, I apologized for my actions, and I do apologize for my actions, Harvey said in a brief past and Tuesday. present oh, God. Obviously, I'm extremely embarrassed by my actions. Yes, I was out on Friday night, past curfew. I did play golf Saturday morning, and I put myself in a bad place to be ready to show up for a ball game. It is my responsibility, and I take full blame for that. Now, Kate, is he still getting traded? Oh, absolutely. He, put, he, was, he owned up to it. He was a man. He's hasn't, he, traded. hasn't he owned up to this similar situation? He has been late to several games. At various points? Like, yes. As my, my dad, I talk to my dad about Matt Harvey all the time because he's a, like an old, school, <laughs> an old school Mets fan who's like, you can go be the nightclub guy about town, but do your job first. And Matt Harvey has that backwards. So I'm speaking for all the Chris Fagans out there when I say, bye, Matt Harvey. <laughs> so, Neil, bye. So, Neil, if the, if the Mets were to get rid of Matt Harvey from a number standpoint, when? does it even matter? Like, is he replacement level at this point? Well, he stinks, yeah. I mean, if you look at – he has a 5.14 ERA. And well, what's he, his FIP? Well, this I'm getting to this, Chad. His BABIP <laughs> – We've talked about this. Batting average on balls in play allowed. The lower it is, the more lucky you've been, and your, your ERA will likely be much lower if you have a low BABIP. League average is 300. He is allowing a 236 BABIP, which has to be one of the <laughs> lowest in baseball. So according to uh, any kind of logic, his ERA should be incredibly low, and he, his FIP is higher than his ERA, and his ERA is 5.14. He I don't know what any of that right means. Now. But you know it's bad. But uh, get rid of Matt Harvey. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's leave it there. I'm sure there'll be more Matt Harvey news this season to come. There will be more Mets chaos, and I think we still need to answer the question of how do you know when a manager has completely lost control of a team? Because Terry Collins was supposed to be the steadying hand. He was supposed to be the clubhouse guy. He was supposed to be the one that infused you an guys adult mentality. Start your own Mets podcast. Really into this team. Come on now, save it for Panic City. Come okay. on. All right, I'll, I'll call it. There's the another podcast. Spin, the real spinoff of Hot Takedown is called Panic City. It's about the Mets. You haven't heard it. I have my and Mets hat on backwards Mets. now. So I was being impartial. All right. All right. But let's, I might turn let's, it around. Let's, let's, let's bring it home. Simmer down a little bit. Go talk about running. That'll cool us off. And, uh, and we'll, get to, we'll get to the Mets another day. We're the first people that will be less exhausted after involving with a, a two-hour uh, two marathon. <laughs> yeah. Two-minute marathon. That'd be something. Yeah. Okay, now on to running, where a few weeks ago we discussed the efforts to break the fabled two-hour marathon mark. No one has ever run a marathon in less than two hours. It would require four minute, 34 and a half seconds per mile. That's the mile time. Uh, and over the weekend, three runners attempted to do it, sponsored, or at least the race, quote-unquote, was sponsored by Nike. Um, and here to discuss the results of that race is 538's Christy Ashwanden. Hi, Christy. Hello, Chad. Welcome back to Hot Takedown. So let's let's talk about this this event that Nike put on. Did anybody break the barrier? Let's start from the top. Right. Well, no one broke the barrier, but Eliud Kipchoge came damn close. Chad, he only missed it by 25 seconds. That's over 26 wow. miles. <laughs> Right. That's a second a mile that he missed it by. And so, Chrissy, I feel like we spoke beforehand and your expectations were that this was not going to necessarily lead to that close of an attempt that that um, even with technology and, and a sort of specialized race that it may have just been too much of a, a margin to shave off of every mile. 
That's right. I mean, hey, I'll admit, I I did not expect him to get anywhere near this close. You know, I was corrected that no one broke the two hour mark, but this is this is impressively close. And I think a lot of people were uh, very impressed and surprised. I mean, I would say that this this result definitely betrayed expectations for sure. Now, how much of that was the fact? I know that this was not an official event because they had like someone pacing along the side and kind of, uh, you know, keeping them on schedule. Basically, is that uh, how, how much of a role did that play? And do you think that somebody could do that without or come this close without the benefit uh, of that kind of pacing crew next to them? Yeah, I, d- I don't think that anyone's going to come this close to a two two hour marathon in an actual race anytime soon. I mean, this is really having every possible fact. That, that Nike could think of, having all of those factors correct. And I would actually make the argument that this wasn't, in fact, an actual marathon. It, it wasn't a race. It was really a completely different event. I would call it a run to exhaustion, which is this weird test that <laughs> scientists often do in a lab. And it's funny, I just was writing um, about this recently, about how it has no you know, real world application. Uh, applicability. And here we actually had a run to exhaustion in in real life. But basically, this was sort of akin to um, getting on a treadmill, setting it to 434 miles and running as long as you could. And and that's what he did. You know, it was really only the last little bit where he fell off the pace. And I should just mention here that he had a Tesla car pacing him. So this was a motor paced event. And then I believe it was six runners at all times, sort of in a triangle shape and front of the runners, blocking the wind, and also setting the pace. And so you sort of had two factors coming from this. One was the actual windbreak, but the second was sort of a psychological benefit, I would say, of not having to think about setting the pace and, and just sort of following. And And that can be a huge benefit, especially in a long race like this. There is a sort of mental fatigue that sets in when you're trying to always kind of fight your body, telling you to slow down. I mean, here it's just like, all right, here's the pace, man. I got to try and stay on it as long as I can. So given that... Uh- uh, did we learn anything that could be applied to like a real race? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we what we learned is that Kipchoge is, I mean, he, the guy's on fire. He's amazing. And I think that, you know, it shows that human physiology is probably capable of breaking the two hour mark. Um, back in 1991, a researcher named Mike Joyner actually wrote a, a paper arguing this, that physiologically humans are capable of, of running. I believe he predicted it's like 157. So I think that this is sort of proof of principle, like, yes, humans are going to be able to break two hours, but it's going to take really special conditions and a perfect day to make it happen. I saw that Kara Goucher, who was a former Nike athlete and also a marathoner, was tweeting about the fact that there is no inclusion of of women in this Nike breaking barrier event. Um, Do you have any sense of if they were going to set up something for women? Like what would do you in your mind, what would the standard be? that we would want to get women below? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would, you know, I would say that the current world record in the marathon, Paula Radcliffe's uh, record, which has just been untouchable for, I believe she's had it for, I want to say close to 20 years. Is that right? Or 15 years, something like that. I believe it was set in the early 2000s. Um, You know, even coming close to her record. I mean, some people have argued that she actually, you know, from the perspective of women, 
that her her performance, her world record performance, is sort of the equivalent. But yeah, I find you know one one criticism that I would lob at this Nike effort is that it does not include women at all, and I don't really see how this helps women's sport, women's running at all. And there's no reason they couldn't have had some women involved and you know picked a, a similar you know why not try and break Radcliffe's record? Yeah, that that uh, record by Radcliffe is two min two hours fifteen minutes twenty five seconds. Yeah, I was wondering because I think. We can obviously in other sports understand the differences in sex that uh, allow male athletes to be superior in some physical attributes. When it comes to the marathon, and this is what Kara Goucher seemed to be alluding to, why not include women, not just to say break Paula Radcliffe's record, but like in the two-hour discussion? In your mind, is that even a reasonable statement? Well, and real quick, Christy, to piggyback on Kate's point, wasn't there some research recently that, or that women are breaking ultra or faster than men at ultra marathons because, for whatever reason, uh, perhaps their physiology is better adapted for for especially long runs? Yeah, so there have been instances in ultra-distance events of women performing as well as men and, and beating men, you know, legitimately winning races, coming in first compared to the men. You know, I think that there are physiological differences that are going to make it hard for women to outpace men, even in some of these ultra events. But if there is an event that women are sort of better suited to, I think it is the the ultra, you know, the longer distance events. A part of this is just has to do with metabolic things and the way that, that uh, women use fuel a little bit differently than men at some of these long distances. But to get to the question of, you know, should women be involved in a two-hour record? And I would I would say yes. I mean, look, if the current world record for women is 215, that's really, really a stretch goal. I mean, it's a stretch goal for Ben, but there's no reason that they can't be involved in this and to see, you know, how, how fast can we can we go? And, you know, women's running is a much younger sport compared to men in terms of marathon running. I mean, yeah, you had in the 80s, Joan Benoit Samuelson, who was also here at this event in Italy as a, as a speaker, yeah, she was the first first winner of the Olympic marathon for women. So, yeah, it's only been like one generation that women have even been competing at an elite level in this sport. Yeah, and it seems like just the opportunity to get any kind of data on women's performance under this like super controlled uh, setup like you described earlier would be pretty valuable in a sport that, like you said, is so young and hasn't had as much research as, as on the men's side. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And, you know, the way to find out more about women and, and to push uh, women's performances is to study them and to include them. You know, it shouldn't be an afterthought. Considering that almost all of the variables were controlled in this breaking two hours attempt, I'm wondering if you are aware of the the variable and if it was controlled about what fuel these athletes put into their body. Yeah, so the the three guys who were running the marathon um, were each being given individual little bottles with different drinks. Now, apparently, Kipchoge had this new sports drink that, you know, there's all this hype around it. It has some sort of bubbles or something in it that's supposed to help with absorption. You know, look, it's, you know, getting some carbohydrates in in an effort like this is helpful. There's pretty good evidence on that. But I, I think the, the sports drink and all that stuff is is mostly hype at this at this point. Um, you know, I was talking to Mike Joyner, the guy who wrote the paper about the, the sub two-hour marathon back in the 90s. And he said, look, you know, you know, they probably could have drank iced tea with, with a little bit of sugar in it. You know, I, I think that some of these products have really been overhyped. So we should also 
ask because we sort of have to about whether there are other substances that were being ingested by the athletes. What were the controls on on uh, performance enhancing drugs that that I guess Nike would have put into place? Yeah, so apparently they had a, had hired a third party to come in and do drug testing. So there was some drug testing afterwards. You know, we obviously won't have the results of that back yet. But this is kind of the elephant in the room, right? I mean, there's anytime you have performances like this, there's always going to be talk of doping. I mean, there's a very good uh, track record of having um, top marathon runners uh, be found to be doping. In fact, the women's marathon champion was was just popped for doping. You know, so that's that's always going to be an issue. You know, Nike, you know, has been associated with doping. They were a big sponsor of Lance Armstrong. There have been a lot of questions and investigation on Nike's um, Oregon project, running project. So, you know, it's definitely something people are talking about. But yeah, this is the problem with doping. It's, you know, there's a lot of talk and it's really hard to know what's what's actually going on. Okay. Well, Christy, this has all been really interesting. Uh, is there like a next step that we should be on the lookout for around around breaking the two-hour marathon mark, or uh, is that still too early to know? Yeah, so there are two other projects that have been working on this, and so don't have any specific plans that have been um, publicized yet about what, what they're up to or when they will make an attempt, but don't expect that this will be the last the last try here. Right. All right. Christy Schwanden, thanks so much for coming on. Nice to be back. And listeners, if you want to read a little bit more about this, Christy wrote a piece right after the race was run, and it's up on 538. We'll put it on the show page for a hot takedown. Okay, now on to Significant Digit, where a telling number from the world of sports arrives on Hot Takedown's air. I'm bringing it today. 184.184 is the sig dig. That is Ryan Howard's batting average in triple A. For the Atlanta Braves AAA affiliate, the Atlanta Braves have parted ways with Ryan Howard in part because of that 184 batting average. What a just disaster Ryan Howard's late career has been. It makes me really sad. Yeah. Because, to follow up on it. Well, because I actually covered the Phillies win in the World Series mm-hmm. back when I was with the Philadelphia Inquirer. And he was just really fun to watch. And... He didn't seem like the guy that would just end his career in such a manner because everything seemed to be big. And so it'd be like, bam. And then, like, I'm not going to just stick around the game until I'm embarrassing. Right. Myself. He would have retired three years ago or something like that. Well, yeah. Because he didn't seem like he was just like the guy who had to play baseball. It was like he was this fun, big guy. The contract was too big, I think. I mean, the contract has to go down as one of the worst in baseball history. I mean, so they gave him $138 million over five years. And Fangraphs has this sort of like uh, how much you were worth according to war, uh, how much you deserve to be paid, quote unquote. Uh, And for those five years, I mean, this is unbelievable. He... Uh, was below replacement level, which means that he was worse than some, you know, quad A call up that uh, that you could get on a moment's notice on your roster. Uh, for four of the five seasons that he was under contract, and over the span of those seasons, he was worth negative fifteen point five million dollars. According, so so his war <laughs> was so bad that he, if things were equitable, and I don't believe in this at all, I think players, you know. Uh, earn what they get and even if a contract like this is signed with Ryan Howard God bless Ryan Howard for having that contract but according to this Fangraphs method if things were fair contract wise he would have had to pay the Phillies 15.5 million dollars would be willing to pay a baseball team to, to let them play to play at a below I mean, we have like, that's, well, great, that's a great re- revenue model for some for some team 
for like the 33rd or whatever expansion team. Well, that's a thing. Uh, and isn't Tim Tebow doing that right hey now? Oh. Tebow is doing that, and that was a thing for a lot. Uh, in, in Formula One, you would have these rich guys that, because teams need funding and there's a lot of like income inequality uh, among teams, the lower bottom feeding teams in Formula One would let these like rich guys <laughs> pay for the right to be a, like a secondary driver on the team. And they would never win. They would never even come close to anything, but they would be a part of the team. And, and let, uh, here, we'll take your money for it. But seriously, <laughs> how much should it cost to play for a major league team and get one at bat in the major leagues? What if you're bat? just a super rich dude or woman. My favorite team or any team. It's got to well, be a premium. Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, like, is there a premium? Get to, yeah. So, like, yeah, if I want to get an at bat team. for the Mets. Like, what should that price tag Didn't be? Did Billy Crystal also do this in, like, spring training? Can we scale up the Billy no, Crystal? No, but this is, you want a pro game. Yeah, you want like, a real yeah, You want a strikeout say, in a pro game. Let's real say we're game. the Mets of, like, whatever it would be, like, 12 years ago where they're 2009 terrible. 2009 Mets. Yeah. I think 100 grand. 100 grand? Whoa, that is That's way so underselling low. it. Chad. I would think you could get a minimum of $10 million. Oh, yeah. You for would get some wall strike out in one at bat? Yeah, I mean, some hedge fund schmuck. Oh, would you could pay get that. A ridiculous amount. Well, that's what you should oh, charge if you're the team. You know, it's capitalism. I didn't say what right. do you think is equitable I'm and fair sorry, in a socialistic didn't world. Realize. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the Mets also. You have to realize they're going to wring every drop of money they can out of this situation. All right. That'll do it for this week's <laughs> show. Listeners, if you know the answer to Kate's question, email us podcast at 538.com or leave it in a review while you leave a rating on iTunes. Because that's where we are. Hot takedown. Doing the credits a little bit out of order today. May as well. Uh, we're also on your favorite podcasting app. Find us wherever you find your podcasts. Our producer is Katie Ferguson. The first person to buy hot takedowns, man, yet that is Jody Avergan. We got production assistance from Tony Chow or Estrada. We miss you. Good luck out there at Gimlet Land. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, for Chad. Talking about sports. Thanks, Neil, for talking about sports. Thank you, Chad. I'm Chad of Matlin. Talk to you next time.